Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be starting season seven. Okay, we made it through season six. We've survived. (laughs) And we start off with season seven, episode one, Trials and Tribulations. First aired September 16th, 1990. And the IMDb summary reads, Jessica is accused of false testimony and bribery in the death of an escaping murderer. So we have a little bit of trivia and then we have two returners, the cast, and then we're going to get into this one. So do I think this was a strong start for season seven? I don't know. I I enjoyed the episode. I did. Um, Jessica did a bit more than a normal person would do. <laughs> are we surprised? No. Uh, and those of you who are on Patreon and have uh, listened to the book reviews or those who have read the books know that this is very tame in comparison to the wildly illegal stuff <laughs> that the Jessica in the book does. But it's a fine episode. Um, There is a similar one later on in the seasons, maybe season eight. It may also be like the first episode of one of the seasons too. I, I forget, but that one is also interesting. And I'm not watching this. I didn't watch this as a lawyer. I watched this as a regular Murder, She Wrote viewer, right? I put aside my uh, legal knowledge to watch this one, okay? (laughs) But even with that, I don't think there was anything crazy. Yeah, she went through the police files, but like that, that, in that universe, that's fine, right? We all know that. But anyway, let's get into this. And like I said, it's a, it's not a bad episode at all. Um, Is it one of the stronger ones of the season? It's not the strongest of the season. I'll say that. It's not the strongest of the season, but to have Jessica back from start to finish to see a little bit of what happens after she solved a murder. Now, the other one that's similar to this, that one is also claiming that she gave false testimony. I believe she actually testified in trial at trial in that future episode. And of course, somebody changes their testimony and gets murdered. So there's that. <laughs> but they do take they do approach it in a different way in that other episode. So it's not necessarily redundant. Uh, It's also worth a watch. So let's get into this one. Trivia. There was only one piece of trivia. (laughs) So (laughs) this is what we got. Though Len Cariou originated the role on Broadway, George Hearn, who's in this episode, 
starred alongside Angela Lansbury in the national tour of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, 1982. Now, George Hearn plays Elliot Von Stubbin. He has, he has a speaking role, but it's not a significant role uh, in the, the scheme of things. But that's who he is. He plays Elliot, the restaurant owner. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. So we have two returners. First, we have Michael Beck, and we will recognize him as Danny Schubert in season five, episode 11, The Search for Peter Carey. Now he was the, he ended up being murdered, right? He had found Peter Carey, right? Come to find out, surprise, it actually was Peter Carey, but he had convinced this guy to pretend to be Peter Carey. And once he inherited the money from his dying grandfather, he would give some hundred thousand or some portion of it to Daniel. But Daniel ends up being murdered, but he also ends up finding Peter Carey and reconnecting him with his family. In this episode, he plays Justin Fields. So he's also a scammer in this one. <laughs> I don't know. He doesn't necessarily have a scammer face, but he he's a scammer. I believe it. But uh, yeah, he doesn't necessarily scream, oh, he's a scammer, typecast him as that. But he's believable as a scammer. I'll put it that way. And then we have George Maharis, and we will recognize him as Alex Burton from season six, episode 15, The Fixer Upper. Now, he was the actor who was the ex-lover of Deborah Tarkington, and he was trying to buy the Tarkington estate. She refused to sell it to him because he had only gotten with her so that he could get in good with her father. As soon as he got his first movie role that turned out to be a hit, he dumps Deborah. Yet the father doesn't drop him because he made him so much money. He signed him to, I think, a three picture deal, something to that effect. So Deborah is rightfully pissed and is like, you're not getting this house. But he didn't even want the house for petty reasons. He didn't want it for any other reason than he was going to, he had purchased all the properties around it so that he could have like a super estate. Uh, But Deborah was like, kick rocks with no socks. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, let's get into the cast. So we have Justin Fields and Stevenson. Geraldine and Eddie Stone, Elliot Von Stubben, or Steuben, sorry, Steuben, Beatrice Vitello, Angelo Vitello, Charlie Cosmo, Ray Dandridge, and Sergeant Paulson. So we open up with an electrician in a van 
leaving the prison after, I guess, doing some work. And of course, before the van is allowed to go through the gate and exit the property, and they're in a New York State prison, it, it's a New York State prison, the van is checked out. Now, the prison guard just uh, looks in it and closes the door. Okay, just looks around. There's tools and stuff, but there's nothing human-sized, okay, or big enough to hide a person, okay, from what he can see. So he closes it up. The driver gets in the driver's seat and drives off. Like, they wait, they open the gate, and as he's, like, taillights passing the gate, the alarm goes off that there's a missing prisoner. So the guy who opened the gate, he pulls out his gun. He's yelling, stop. I'm like, they're in a van and they're definitely like a hundred feet away. Um, so like there's police just coming out of nowhere. Okay. Cause obviously there are, well, I won't say obviously there's typically local police, even though it's a state facility, um, they, some of the jails and prisons have local police in the area, just like a firehouse will normally have a police officer on duty there, right? That's either part of their route or they stop in and that's where they're stationed for the rest of the evening, right? So I don't know if they do that in every state, but they do that in New York. So it's not surprising that there were police vehicles at hand. Okay. So that's not strange because it's a prison. So it's, you know, not unusual that they would have, most likely it would have been state police as opposed to local police, but whatever, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to question that. Uniform police officers. I think there were some state police as well, but they start, they come out. Then they have a helicopter. Now, I don't know if New York state prisons just have a helicopter on deck nearby because in case of escapes, but maybe it's a maximum security prison and they happen to have one. Like, I don't know. I've never been to a prison thankfully, personally, or to visit anybody. Because I heard they strip search you. And I, you know what? I don't love anybody enough um, to do that, uh, except my mama. And she would be like, don't, don't no, uh, don't come here to see me like this. So I, yeah, I love my father too. Um, but he know I ain't gonna go. <laughs> he know I ain't gonna go up there for that. No, no. Well, I don't know what turns your life took at this big age of yours, but I'm surely not going up to the prison. Do you know those state prisons are far? Okay. Anyway, so yeah, so I don't know if they happen to have a helicopter just on deck. Okay. But there was a helicopter. And so the escapee, right, he pops out of a trap door, right, a secret compartment in the floor of the van, 
okay? And it looked large, okay? Like it looked large and I don't understand, but we needed this for the plot to go. We needed this for the plot to go. But the fact is that they would, actually, yeah, no, no, no. They, they would have checked under the van. Just like they have like mirrors on sticks to check for like bombs or other stuff that may be secreted uh, under a vehicle. Like if you go to the border, that's what they do. Like they check under the vehicle. So had they checked under the vehicle, they would have noticed that there is an additional space under there. But we needed this for the plot to go along. But in the realities of realities, do not do this because they're going to check under the vehicle because they would have checked when the vehicle came in to make sure that you're not smuggling stuff in to the jail, to the prison. And they're going to check on the way out because they want to make sure you're not trying to take somebody out of the prison. So yeah, they, they would have definitely checked under the van and noticed that there was an additional compartment under there. But yeah. So homeboy jumps out and gets into the passenger seat. Now he's still in his orange. He didn't even have like a change of clothes so that he could be like incognito. And apparently he's been there for six years. So it's it's very likely that the... um the staff, the corrections officers would have noticed, would have recognized him, I was going to say, even if that the driver had brought him a uniform to try to play it off. Um, but it's probably the same people who let him in are the ones who are letting him out. And they would have been like, there was only one of you when you came in. But anyway, he's wearing his orange, sitting in the passenger seat, just full out clear windows. Okay, windshield, not tinted. Side window, not tinted. They can see you, all right? So they got the helicopter, they got police cars, they got the corrections officers like running after them. And the guy, the driver is very nervous and he's like, this was a bad idea. And he, and uh, Eddie Stone, yeah, yeah, Eddie. He's like, he pulls out a gun. You found out, you got a gun, all right? You got a gun, but you didn't have a change of clothes in that pit in the car, <laughs> van. <laughs> so you can at least be, anyway, why didn't you stay in there? Like, I don't understand why you would have gotten out of the secret compartment. You should have stayed in there, okay? They would have come out. Clearly, they're not checking under the van, you stop, you're like, what's the deal? I, the driver should have been like, I don't know what's going on. Oh my goodness, this is like my second day on the job. Uh, they're never gonna let me do another, go out on my own again. And just like start like freaking out and mumbling to yourself, right? And then when they, you know, you come out, you cooperate, right? They'll check the van. Maybe this time they check under and you just play stupid, okay? You just play completely stupid. Like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Like, why, why, how would I know that there was a compartment in the back of this truck? This is not even my truck. This is my employer's truck. I just came here. I don't know if somebody could have hopped in here and got in there. And I, now I'm a, an accessory. 
to to an escape for oh see oh no no see see no I went to college to become a preacher and I should have really just stayed on that because now I I don't understand like I don't I, there's a whole person in there what do you mean there's a whole person in there or the other option since homeboy popped out of there and he had a gun I would have stopped the vehicle put my hands like I no, I wouldn't have stopped the vehicle I would have slowed down just a little bit open the door and then tuck and roll right and just lay out on the ground not moving and be like he kidnapped me he kidnapped me like he said he was gonna murder my family he knew where I lived he said he was gonna kill me I I was not voluntarily a part of this he has a gun. This man has a gun. Okay. And he's in prison for murdering somebody. I think they would believe you that he threatened to murder you and or your family so that you would get him out. Okay. Like, anyway, but we need this to move the plot along because this is the first two minutes of the episode. <laughs> so anyway, there's a police chase and... The driver is just very nervous. He's very scared. He has a gun on him that pointed at him, not on his person, but pointed at him from this murderer who he's helping escape. We have, we never find out their relationship. Okay. We don't, I don't even know if we know this man's name. All right. I don't remember hearing it, but there was a lot going on. So they, he may have said, Eddie may have said it or maybe an IMDB and it was just too far down. <laughs> For me to actually have uh, noted it. Anyway, so they end up flipping the van. The driver ends up flipping the van and they don't survive. Neither one survives, the driver nor Eddie. Okay. So yeah, because neither one of them had a seatbelt on. But so I when they was flipping and, you know, that, yikes. But the... I, I don't know the driver's deal. If he was like forced into this, then I feel bad that he died. If he, you know, he could have been tricked into this. He could have been convinced, manipulated that this man was innocent and that, um, you know, he needed to be freed because the justice system was against him. He had no chance. His, his attorney was paid off. He paid off the judges, the prosecution, the whole nine. So I don't know if they wove a tale that he believed and was like, yes, I'm going to help you because this is an injustice. Uh, but as soon as homeboy pulled out a gun, I would have been like, um, so y'all were lying to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he really is a murderer with, you know, or did they, did the driver put the gun in there for Eddie to have? Anyway, so they, they don't make it. So the next scene, we have Jessica sitting outside a hotel. I don't know. She's sitting outside at a table having a meal or finishing a meal, I should say. And the waiter comes over and says, Oh, hi, Mrs. Fletcher. There is a an older lady standing over there holding one of your books. And I think she would like an autograph. And you know what? She seems very nice. And she remind, she kind of reminds me of my grandmother. 
So Jessica's like, oh, of course. Yes, you can send her over. I'll be happy to. So she asks, she walks over, she hands her the book. She's like, oh, I'm a big fan of yours. My mom's a big fan of yours too. You can make it out to whatever her name was. And so Jessica's like, okay, thank you. And um, she's like, so do you still live in Cabot Cove? And she's like, yeah, and I don't plan to ever change that. And then the woman is like, oh, well, St- at 698 Candle Wood Lane. And she's like, yeah, how do you know that? And so she then, this old lady, okay, hands Jessica a summons for a civil suit. So she is like, oh, because that's how it's typed on the summons. Okay, thank you. And picks up her book and leaves. And as she's leaving, she was like, I knew you'd be as nice as your picture. As nice in person as your your picture. I'm like, yo, they really are scandalous. Because like, I'm, she might've actually been a fan. I was like, oh, okay, of course I'd serve. But see, but then also, but then also, are you really a fan if you're willing to f- to serve her a civil suit? Like, I know work is work and money is money. But really? Because what if the suit is successful and she has to pay all this money and she can't write books anymore? Are you really a fan? Have you really thought this through? Was it worth it? But anyway, so... <laughs> so the waiter comes back over, not having heard anything of the conversation, just seeing Jessica... Um, autograph the book and the woman take the book back, right? Um, and so he comes over. He was like, "See, wasn't she so nice?" And Jessica was like, "You need to get a new grandmother." <laughs> like, well, dang, but yeah, uh, I'd be salty as well. So the next scene, Jessica goes to her insurance company, uh, and speaks with the counsel about what this complaint is all about. And so Ray, her attorney, well, the attorney for the insurance company, but he says, six years ago, you assisted the police in in an investigation that led to the arrest of Edward Stone. And Jessica says, yes, I remember that case. And Ray says, well, Stone died one month ago in a failed prison break. She's like, what does that have to do with me? Okay. <laughs> and so he, Ray says, well, his daughter, Geraldine, filed a $50 million wrongful death lawsuit against you because on the grounds that you participated in the in- investigation and were instrumental in his conviction and that his conviction was wrongful because it was trumped up. Tr- no, they didn't made up information, something to that effect. So he was wrongfully convicted, meaning that he was wrongfully imprisoned. And had he not been wrongfully imprisoned, he would not have died while trying to escape prison. Which, as an aside, are you serious? (laughs) Because he was trying, this is on the same level as someone breaking into your house and injuring themselves and then having the audacity to sue you 
because they were injured while committing a crime on your property. So this man who was in prison, okay, which would have been, if it was up to that, if it was like he was wrongfully convicted and therefore wrongfully imprisoned and that's, because she files a wrongful death, okay? Not a wrongful imprisonment, not a wrongful conviction, a wrongful death suit. So taking that leap is wild to me. Now, if she said he was wrongfully convicted because you made up facts, right? And he, therefore he was wrongfully incarcerated. And while incarcerated, he was stabbed to death, okay? He was sitting, eating his lunch, minding his business, and someone mistaken, mistook him for someone else or felt slighted or whatever reason went up and stabbed him to death or was a friend of the person he allegedly murdered came to seek revenge. That would be different. That would be something that people would not have laughed at. Not that they laughed at this, but that would be something that they would actually have, would have given pause because he was not committing a crime when he died. He would have just been sitting, minding his business. And because of Jessica's interference, which, you know, caused his wrongful conviction. Clearly it wasn't, but okay. Wrongful conviction and wrongful incarceration that he would not have been in that prison at that time for this person to have access to murder him. That would have been a much more valid suit, okay? But that's not what we got here, okay? Because obviously this man was bad news, okay? You out here escaping prison with a whole gun? Like a firearm and threatening the driver. Anyway, so Jessica is like, well, this is pure fabrication, like these allegations. Like I... I don't even want to dignify this with a response. And so the attorney is 100% right. Like, we have to answer this. Even if you think that it's nonsense, it has to be responded to. And so he's like, well, I, you know, it, it's fine. Like, I can speak with Charlie, who's probably doing this on a contingency basis, because this sounds wild. Um, and clearly this woman did, I doubt if this woman would have had the money up front. So I'll, you know, we'll, we'll work out a settlement number. So then Jessica is like, no, we're not going to settle because that would mean that they were right. And I'm like, Jessica, you can't have it both ways. Either you are going to respond and fight this or you're not, and they're going to settle without your input, or, well, the insurance company never would have defaulted. The insurance company would have definitely responded and they would have tried to settle, okay? Because technically, they it doesn't really matter what Jessica wants. At the end of the day, the insurance company, I believe, would have the last say because it's their money that would be covering her, okay? 
So she, she says, okay, no, 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 that's, you know, do whatever you need to do, but we're not settling. So he's like, all right, okay. You know, and Jessica says that she's going to go speak with Geraldine Stone to see where she is coming from with all of this. And Ray is like, I don't think that's a good idea. And Jessica's like, I think that's the best idea I've had all day. Girl, what? This woman is suing you. <laughs> that's, do not do that. That is crazy. Okay. So Jessica goes to Geraldine's job. She's a reporter, it looks like. Um, and, or works for a magazine, something, or a, some sort of periodical uh, or publication. So Jessica goes there and Jessica is like, why are you suing me? Okay, I'm sorry that your father is dead, but he was in prison for killing a man. And Geraldine says, yeah, based on trumped up evidence that you created. And, you know, I don't really think we should be talking. We should really let the court decide. So Jessica says, rightfully so, well, the court decided that your father to convict your father and send him to prison. I did not do that. So basically, why is that court's decision incorrect? But you want to take this to you're saying that the civil court should hear this case and make a decision. Like, how, how is that? How is that? How's that make sense, girl? But then as an aside, now this was in 1990, right? So this was before the OJ Simpson trial, which was followed by a civil case because there are different standards of proof or burdens of proof uh, that must be overcome in a criminal case versus a civil case. So Jessica saying this in 1990 makes sense, right? But then a few years later, when we see that the criminal case came out one way and therefore there was a need for, well, they were going to do a wrongful death case anyway. So regardless if he was convicted or not, but we can see that there two different courts can have, and two different juries can have two different determinations. So I will say that as someone looking at this after the world was, you know, those issues were brought to the world stage about criminal versus civil. But in, in this instance, when, the world didn't know unless you were an attorney in either of those realms uh, that Jessica is right. Like the, you know, you're saying that, um, but also, also you're saying that the criminal charges were, uh, he was wrongfully convicted, but you're not appealing his conviction so you didn't try to do in six years, you did not go and challenge the criminal court's decision as to his conviction, but you're going to wait six years and then pop out of the woodwork 
and want a different court to make a determination to put money in your pocket. Interesting. So Jessica leaves. She was like, this clearly was not, it wasn't a bad idea the way it turned out, but like, you know. So Jessica leaves and Jerry gets a phone call and it's her boyfriend who's clearly older than her, Justin. And she's like, Mrs. Fletcher was just here. And I didn't, I didn't even know what to say to her. I feel really sleazy about this. And so clearly Justin's the one who put her up to this because he's like, you know, it's not even going to come out of her pocket. It's going to be the insurance company that covers it. And, you know, once we open Justin's, which would be a restaurant, um, it'll all be worth it. Right. And so then they get off the phone and Elliot comes up to Justin and he's like, I know you're trying to get money to open your own restaurant. I'm going to hold you to your contract. Like basically, like you can't just think you're going to leave. I don't know how long his contract is for, but clearly it's not up soon. Okay. And he's like, you're a competent chef, but you're a lousy businessman. And that's just evidenced by your two prior bankruptcies. So it's better for you to just sit tight and enjoy this job where you're a regarded pastry chef than trying to open your own restaurant with money that you're just going to throw down the drain. So the next scene, we are in the hallway of a court house and Charlie the attorney for Geraldine or Jerry as they call her is preparing a client for, I'm guessing a deposition, maybe trial. And he's basically coaching her to lie. Okay. And about the extent of her injuries. So Ray is there to speak with Charlie and Ray is like, yeah, so I spoke with Mrs. Fletcher and she is like, nah, she ain't lie. And so she's not settling. And this is when Charlie brings out the uh, notarized copy of a deposition of Angelo Vitello. And we also find out that the lieutenant who worked on the case directly with Jessica He has since passed. He passed away a year ago. So Ray reads this, like in the hallway, he starts to read it and then it changes scenes. So then we're in the police precinct and Jessica is speaking with Sergeant Paulson, uh, Paulson, who was the, was a rookie, well, not a rookie officer. He had been there for a while. He was working with Lieutenant Lewis, at the time. And so he remembers Jessica and Jessica is like, oh, hey, you know, I wanted to review the file with him. Um, But obviously he passed away a year before and sad to hear that. And she's like, to be honest, uh, I'm being sued. Uh, They're saying that I was uh, instrumental in Eddie Stone's conviction. And to which Sergeant Paulson, who does not read the room, it is like, yeah, we couldn't have done it without you. Lieutenant Lewis had no idea what he was doing or where to go until you came along and, you know, helped out. So Jessica's like, oh, crap. (laughs) 
if they talked to him. But I'm like, there had to be evidence. Like, honestly, you know, it's not just Jessica's word because Jessica didn't even testify at trial. Like, so that's the thing. I'm like, if she didn't testify at trial, there had to be witnesses. There had to be some corroboration. Like, we don't know if he gave a statement of admission. We don't know anything. We don't know any of the evidence that was put forward to connect Eddie to this murder. We don't. We don't even know what Jessica pointed out that connected him. You know what I mean? Because she didn't testify at trial. So whatever she saw, heard, or found was brought in by other witnesses, you know? Because you can't say, oh, well, Jessica Fletcher told me A, B, C, and D. You need to bring Jessica Fletcher in. Unless homegirl is dead, you have to bring her in, okay? And I think there's like extremely rare circumstances where the person is unavailable and there's certain rules with which uh, we rely on whether a statement uh, can come in or not through somebody else. But Jessica is well able to testify. So yeah, I don't, there had to be other evidence and I wish they would have told us what that other evidence was. So we would have a better idea of how outlandish this may have been, or it's like, not for nothing, they're kind of right, you know? So while Jessica is speaking with Sergeant Paulson, uh, Ray comes in and he's like, I really need to talk to you. So he tells Jessica that uh, Angelo Vitelli, Vitello, who was the cab driver, who testified that on the night of the murder, he picked up Eddie Stone, a block away from the murder scene, about like 10 minutes after the murder or something to that effect. And apparently now he has given a sworn deposition that says that never happened. And not only did that never happen, but that Jessica uh, convinced him to lie and she gave him $5,000 for his trouble. So, you know, she, she is just like, what in the world is happening? Like this, you know, these lies can't stand, right? So Jessica is like, we're going to his apartment. And Ray is following along. He's like, I don't think this is a good idea. Like this is, I, I don't know how you operate. Like, <laughs> Mrs. Fletcher, this is not okay. So they go there and Angelo's wife comes to the door and... She's like, oh, he, he sleep. And she was like, I've come a long way. I really need to speak with him. So she walks in, the, the wife walks back, but she leaves the door open. It opens a bit more and they can see that he's on the oxygen tank. He's in a wheelchair. He's not doing well. Okay. He's not doing well. And he, he like shakes, shakes his head and is like, no, no, that he doesn't want to speak with anybody. So Jessica and Ray are at the door. They see this. They pull the door. Jessica pulls the door back to being ajar um, so that the wife doesn't know that they saw this. And she's like, he he's napping or he's not well, something like that. Um, and they leave. So obviously he he's in a bad way. My question then would... I. 
if I were Ray, but Ray isn't, he was talking about settle. Okay. And Jessica is running this investigation clearly. But what I would have done then is I would have looked more into the deposition, like who was there, who, who was the court reporter, meaning who, or the stenographer, you know, who took them? What was his condition? Was there a notary? Who's that notary? What was like, I would interview them to see if Angela was in, Angelo was in any condition to actually make and, you know, make and sign that statement and understand what he was doing, you know? Well, what were the circumstances? Because obviously they have to ask him, but they could have asked his wife, to be honest. They really should have taken the opportunity to speak with his wife at that point to be like, I understand, um, like, can we speak with you? We can speak in the hallway, you know, um, if you don't want to interrupt him watching TV. Um, we, we just want to know what were the circumstances for him giving that statement? You know, like who took it? Who was there? What happened? You know, but they don't do that at this point. So Jessica then goes to the police station to go through the case file. Now, I'm okay. So the person is dead. I think that based on Freedom of Information Act, those records would be public. Yeah. Yeah, the police file would be public. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not illegal for her to go through them. And even if there were documents in there that had not been disclosed to defense um, throughout the trial, um, that may not have been required to uh, be disclosed to defense. Um, I think because the case is now absolutely closed, the homicide case is closed because the convicted murderer is now dead. You know, he didn't die before he was convicted. He didn't die before he was sentenced. He had been sentenced uh, and he died thereafter. So yeah, I think the... I think it's fine that she went through the file. I don't think there's anything illegal about that or unethical, I should say, not illegal, unethical about that or concerning for a prosecutor because they're not going to have to try that case again because there's no current appeal of his conviction. This is just a civil case. Now, if... In the civil case, they find against Jessica and they determine that he was wrongfully convicted, then I don't, yeah, then they would have to file an appeal on the criminal side. But I don't know. I don't think, I think it's fine that she's going through this file. <laughs> it, you know, it's the Murder She Wrote universe. It's fine. So then Ann Stevenson comes up to her and she was the prosecutor and she's still a prosecutor, but she was the prosecutor who uh, prosecuted 
Eddie Stone six years ago. And she says, like, honestly, I don't believe the new statement from Vitello. But, you know, the fact is that back then my case was built off of two things. One, a lot of circumstantial evidence, which she does not say what that was. And two, on Angelo's testimony. So if I don't have Angelo's testimony, it makes it very difficult to uh, confidently argue against this wrong. Honestly, I still think they would, even if he was wrongfully incarcerated, the fact that he escaped prison and that's how he died. I don't think there's any jury. I don't even think it would get to a jury. I think that would probably be dismissed, but I don't work in that area of law. But I would think that his actions that he took, okay, resulted in his death. And again, like I said, if he was killed in the prison for whatever reason, unless he was in a knife fight with somebody else and he he was the aggressor, then I, I think there would also be an argument that he... No, he wouldn't have been there. But the fact that he was there doesn't mean that we knew that he was going to start fighting people with knives. Uh, So yes, I still don't believe that even if a jury, a civil jury came back and said, yes, we think that he was, um, he was wrongfully convicted and therefore was wrongfully imprisoned. I don't see how in the world there is any way that they would be able to find Jessica and the insurance company liable for him dying as he actively tried to escape prison. It wasn't like they kidnapped him away from the jail. Like you're coming with us, you know, we're escaping and you have to come with us. It wasn't something like that. So yeah, I there is the fact that this attorney was like, we should settle I, we wouldn't even get to that. Like if I, <laughs> I don't know, like I said, I, that's not my area of law, but I promise you if I read that and they said that he died during a prison escape, when I tell you I would have called up the plaintiff's attorney, like you really wasted your time, energy, and I know you're not cheap, time, energy, and effort to type these words out, print them out and mail them to me and file them with the court that the wrongful death is him dying as he tried to escape from prison? What is the case law that would allow you to make that leap? Because that's the first thing I would have been looking for. Like, what's the case law that would allow you to make that leap that okay, well, all of this was wrong up to here. But, you know, just because I was out here doing crimes when I died, uh, you should still have to pay my child $50 million? I don't know what world, like even in the Murder, She Wrote universe, because they're claiming this is in the state of New York. Okay, I, I may be wrong, but crazier things have happened, but I promise you... Okay, that sounds nonsensical.
But okay, fine. So Anne tells Jessica that she hopes that she does not settle this out of court uh, because Anne is running for district attorney. And this wouldn't look good, you know, for on her record as she's preparing to run, which is true. But Jessica's like, I had no plans to settle because what we won't do is have me marked as a liar out here, okay? That's what we're not gonna do. So don't worry about your reputation because as I'm saving mine, you're safe, okay? So as Jessica is leaving police headquarters, uh, Charlie pops up and He's like, oh, maybe we should work out a little settlement. And Jessica is like, no, that would mean that I lied, which I didn't. So however this plays out, it plays out. I'll see you in court. Like, he's like, you want, you know, it could be three to four years and you, you're going to drag this out. Yep. <laughs> She's not paying for the attorney. The insurance company is providing the attorney. What? This is not on her. This is you, okay? What you didn't do, Charlie, you didn't read her stats, okay? You did not research her to know that she's the wrong one on the wrong day, okay? Every day is the wrong day when you're talking about suing Jessica Beatrice Fletcher, claiming that she lied on somebody, Okay, and especially lied on them to the point that they ended up imprisoned. No, okay, that cannot stand. So you and your high dollar suits and questionable to pay, okay, should have, now it could be his real hair, but I don't know. I don't know about that. But <laughs> but you, you think that you're gonna intimidate her to settle? It's, it's not coming out of her pocket. Like, I, that's what I don't understand. Like, she she has more to lose by settling this. And I don't understand what Charlie missed about that. He just saw, oh, she's a celebrity. Okay, she's not gonna want a scandal. So she'll settle quickly under, you know, off the record. But the fact is that you didn't do your research. She's not just any celebrity. She's not in just anybody. She has a level of integrity that even if it was settled out of court, okay, the fact that it existed, even if it was sealed, she would know in her own. And the plaintiff would know that they settled, meaning that she concedes that she lied. So Charlie is kind of taken aback at this, thinking that, oh, they'll get a quick settlement. And she's like, not today, Satan. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week. I'll see you in three to four years in court. Okay? <laughs> Good for you, Jessica. Don't be out here letting these people lie on your name. So the next scene, Jessica and Ray go to the restaurant that Elliot owns. Or he's the manager, but I think he's the owner. And also where Justin works. So we find out that Elliot is a huge fan of Jessica's and is very helpful. Now he becomes helpful later as well. 
So Ray is like, why are we here? Okay, <laughs> like I'm very nervous. I don't have this type of money. Okay. And she she's like, I did some research on Geraldine and she is involved with a pastry chef who works here. This boyfriend of hers is trying to open a restaurant and needs about a half a million dollars to do so. So Ray is like, but they're suing you for, but she's suing you for 50 million. And Jessica is like, yeah, an amount that she never expected to collect, but how much would you, the insurance company and defense counsel and her attorney settle for now? And he's like, oh, cause probably like a million dollars or something like that, right? It's like, oh, that explains a lot. Yeah, that explains why they're, Charlie's trying to rush to a settlement, why he's trying to like downplay this in a sense that, come on, we could get this. I'm sure we could get rid of this for something reasonable. Let's get this done. You don't want to drive this out and you don't want to try this and, you know, all of this stuff. So at this point, they see Jerry arrive. And she clearly doesn't see them. She looks around real suspiciously and goes to the back. So while Jessica's sitting there, uh, the waiter comes out and says there's a call. And so the call is from Sergeant Paulson. And he is at the Vitello's apartment building. And he informs her that Angela was taken to the hospital. And if she wants to speak with him, she better get down to the hospital now because he's unlikely to make it till the morning. So the next scene, we're at the hospital and the doctor says that he is in a diabetic coma. Okay. So his blood sugar spiked uh, to the point where he is now in a coma. So he's breathing, but it sounds like he doesn't have any other, uh, he's, he's in a coma. So he's unconscious, but breathing. So Jessica goes to comfort Mrs. Vitello because she's like, I can't imagine um, what she's going through. Now, in the book series, we find out that Frank, Jessica's husband, died after a sickness, out of, after a long sickness. And honestly, I think that's how he passed away in the TV series as well. I don't think they ever explicitly say that. Um, but... Yeah, so I'm sure that Jessica has a, a deeper understanding of what Miss Mrs. Vitello is going through. So she goes and Mrs. Vitello apologizes for being rude earlier the other day. Um, and we find out that he, Mr. Vitello, always had uh, diabetes. Like the, they weren't uh, unaware of his diagnosis, but they found lung cancer two years ago. And she says, you know, this is Mrs. Vitello. I, you know, I'm there day and night and I watch him and I watch him and I watch him. And the one time in these two years that I finally leave the apartment to go help a friend, watch a friend's kids so that her and her husband can go out, I come back and I find him you know, she doesn't finish that sentence, but we all know, like passed out and on the verge of death. 
And so we also find out that after 30 years of working, uh, she said what type of job, maybe the lumber mill, something to that effect, that he was laid off. No benefits, no retirement, nothing. And that really just broke him. Like he gave up. She was like, I saw that he gave up at that point. Now, she said they let him go because he was too sick to work. So I'm guessing that that was in the last two years that this happened. So that's, you know, now he's just in the wheelchair on the oxygen tank in front of the TV, just, you know, waiting to go, you know, to the pearly gates, like waiting to go to the other side. He's just given up. And, you know, clearly as somebody who worked and provided for his, his family, I think it's just the two of them. So provided for his wife and they have an apartment, which is a, a nice size apartment, definitely for New York City. And he has nothing like they They don't even have health. And well, I think Medicaid was a Medicare because he's older. He's clearly in his 70s, probably. Um, or it could be the sickness. So he could be in his 60s, but just look in his 70s because uh, he's been very, very sick. Um, but they may have I don't I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1990, Medicare was a thing. Okay, so he may have that insurance because they surely took him to the hospital. And I feel like back in the day, if you didn't have insurance, they could just be like, uh, so <laughs> bye. Uh, but now, you know, they, they got to kind of bite the bullet because uh, like, they don't find out till it's too late. So you're already in there. But yeah, so like they maybe they have. He should have been getting social security though, but just not, you know, he wasn't ready to retire. He had been a provider and they're probably like just scraping by off of government assistance, which is probably very difficult for him as somebody who was able-bodied and worked until his older years. But also on the other side, the fact that you had to work into your 60s, um, like you had to work into your 60s, not chose to work into your 60s, is also a sad state of affairs. But yeah, so we find out that from the sergeant that someone broke into the apartment, the back door, the glass panel was broken out. Uh, There was a syringe in the backyard and... His, uh, he was injected with pure dextrose, which is going to drive your blood sugar up because I think it's pure sugar. It's another name for sugar, if I'm reading this right. And so that's what put him into the diabetic coma. So now this is a murder case. Okay. So of course, that also means that Jessica is a suspect, So now we have Ray going to speak with Charlie and Charlie's like, oh, well, we can settle this for a little less than a million dollars. And Ray is like, Jessica believes that this whole suit is a lie and I believe her. And so we're not going to settle. And especially the fact that someone killed Mr. Vitello. 
So then Charlie comes up and says, well, there's a witness who saw a woman leaving Vitello's apartment building around eight thir- around 7.30 p.m. So Jessica goes to speak with the sergeant and we find out that Mrs. Vitello left at 6.15 to go up the street to babysit the couple's children. And she returned at 8.30 when she, at which time she found her husband unresponsive and they and so it's like clearly it wasn't her that they saw at 7 30 the witness didn't see um mrs vitello but also miss vitello is she has grayish hair but it's like grayish brown hair or dark gray silver situation and they describe the woman very vaguely they don't give a height a weight nothing but they said she had blonde hair under a hat and sunglasses on and a trench coat. And she left through the front door. So Jessica's like, but wait a second. If the syringe was found in the back, how was she, why was she coming out the front door? Like this doesn't make any sense. And so Sergeant Paulson is like, yeah, so you're a suspect. Um, what would really be helpful? Because like my captain is like, listen, okay, we got to do this by the book because <laughs> we don't want something, uh, murder conviction reversed. Okay. Um, so get her to do a lineup, which Jessica agrees to do. But before she does that, oh, no, no, no. So we, she does that. And Ann Stevenson is sitting in the room with the witness and Sergeant Paulson. And there are six women. I couldn't tell the way it was set up. I couldn't tell if there were three or if there were six. You know what I mean? Like three and they were just like uh, framed, <laughs> framed weirdly, or if it was six. And we were seeing two um, sets of three instead of the same set of three twice. You know, the angle that it was at, it was unclear if the divide in front was dividing six between six women or if there was a mirror image that we were seeing. So anyway, so the woman is like, it could be number two. So they call up number two. They have her walk turn and the witness is like, yeah, I do not know. I can't be sure. I'm an old lady with bad eyesight. So I don't, I don't know who it is. So at least she didn't say, yeah, I think it's number two. She was like, no, I couldn't, I could not tell you who it was. It was dark. I had bad eyesight. I'm old. I, leave me be. I've done my civic duty, right? So then they're in the precinct area and Jessica walks out. She sees Anne and Sergeant Paulson at the desk. And so they thank her for her time and they're like, the witness can't make an ID. So that's, you know, a dead end. And so Jessica was like, yeah, I'd be willing to do it. I have no problem if you need me to do it again. But my only stipulation is that you also join the lineup. And Anne's like, what do you mean? So Jessica invites her to lunch and they go back to Elliot's restaurant and Anne admits that she was the woman who was seen leaving the building, but she didn't kill him. 
And Jessica believes that. But Anna's like, why? How did you know it was me? And she was like, yeah, I didn't know it was you, but I was using some context clues, the, the blonde hair, and you were the only other person who had something to lose if the original case fell apart. So she said that she never got a chance to talk to him. She could hear the TV on. She did not think that she heard him moving around. She knocked on the door and no one ever came to the door. And that was around 7.30. So then Elliot comes over and Jessica asks him to sit down and says, oh, um, uh, do you know Mrs. Stevenson? He's like, yes, I know, you know, the possibly the next district attorney. And um, so he, you know, he's in the know. Okay. Like, I don't know. Maybe she, either he was trying to get her to do a fundraiser there or she, well, no, she's, Actively a prosecutor. She couldn't do a, fan, a fundraiser. But maybe he's trying to get her to do a fundraiser there. <laughs> maybe that's why he's in the know about these things. But he sits there. Jessica invites him to sit down. And we find out that he fired Justin last night. That he snuck out before seven and never returned. And so Jessica was like, but I thought I saw Jerry here. Like, what was that about? And... Elliot says, well, she was almost as surprised as I was that he was missing. So I called him this morning and to fire him. And he thought it was funny and said, that's the last night I was going to be a pastry chef anyway, right? That he doesn't need it. And so he doesn't need the job. And Elliot's like, well, I want to know what he knows that I don't know. So the next scene, Jessica goes to... Justin's restaurant coming soon Justin's restaurant and finds Justin and Jerry there um you know painting and and building and Jessica has done some research and she found out that they put a deposit on this place of ten thousand dollars and the money came from Jerry's savings account and so Jessica is like I wonder who else you paid out of that account And so Justin's getting all, you know, like, you're, what are you doing here? You can't be here, whatever, whatever, get out of here. And so Jessica says, suppose the sergeant is checking out your financials right now. What is he going to find? And so Jerry is like, listen, listen, I never even wanted to do this, but it was an easy way to make quick money. And Jessica says, at the expense of the insurance company and my reputation, because don't nobody care about the insurance company, but her reputation. And so Justin's like, shut up. You're going to end up going to jail, right? And so Jerry turns to him and says, maybe I don't care. You know what? If you want to leave, then leave. It's fine. He's like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Bye. And so he, he walks out and... Jessica is like, if you were going to shed a few tears for him, I wouldn't. She was like, it's fine. <laughs> I was trying, I'm glad I'm rid of him anyway. Anyway, what do you need to know? So the next scene, we're at the precinct with the sergeant, Jerry, and Jessica. And we find out from Jerry that she paid Vitello $25,000 in cash. She did not pay him directly, but her attorney, uh, Charlie, is the one who handled the transaction He took it to Mr. Vitello and gave it to him in his living room because Mr. Vitello 
could not leave his apartment. He was too sick. And that was about three weeks ago. So Jessica looks at Sergeant Paulson and they both are like, you know what that means? Now to me, I I automatically thought that it meant there, it's probably fair to question the validity of the statement, okay? We can look into that, but that's not what it is. They Their epiphany was that the money is still in the apartment. That $25,000 is still in the apartment. So the sergeant is able to get a search warrant in order to search the Vitello apartment. Mrs. Vitello is there and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, like what's going on? And so they find the envelope with $25,000 in it. It had been behind a roof tile, okay? A ceiling tile, not a roof tile. They're in an apartment, a ceiling tile. And so clearly Mr. Vitello, who could not walk, he was wheelchair bound, did not hide that money, okay? And this is really similar to the future episode, okay? Sorry, sorry. Spoiler for that one a little bit, but you're not going to remember by the time we get to it. Anyway, I'm not even going to tell you the name of it. I'm not going to look it up and tell you the name so that you know, those who know, know. But <laughs> if you don't, then great. But the wife has hidden it, hidden the money because obviously Mr. Vitello could not. And Jessica is like, he left the money. When you came back at 8.30, you found him, but you found, you found the money and you found something else. Do you still have that note? He left the note, okay? So she's like, yeah, the note was on top of the $25,000. And basically he, he uh, self-terminated, Okay. He admits that he, well, she knows, like Mrs. Vitello knows that he lied um, and it was eating him up. And he had been a devout Christian for 30 years and he just could not live with himself having lied for $5,000. Well, no, for $25,000. Yeah, for $25,000. So... But I think, so he couldn't, he couldn't bear it anymore. So he's like, I don't have anything left to give you. And if I stay here any longer, it's just going to be more of a drain to you. Like, uh, he knows that he's dying anyway. And there's nothing, he doesn't have life insurance. There's nothing to give her except this $25,000. So he's like, it's not enough, but it's the best that I can do. And I'm like, I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine what Mrs. Vitello is going through, you know? And so she, so she, yeah, so she gives, hands over the note. And I'm like, I understand why Mr. Vitello did this. And I'm sure, obviously, Jessica understands as well. He had lost everything. And then this opportunity to be able to leave something to his wife came up. And he's not, 
until Jessica came to the door, right? He it, That took it to another level because he felt bad lying, but I'm sure he was able to justify it to himself to a degree. Like when I die, she's not going to be able to afford to bury me. She's, you know, how is she going to be able to pay for this? How is she able to pay for that? And then this opportunity comes up. I, I just have to sign this paper and and say that what happened six years ago that I lied about that. Okay, well, that's not that that's not so bad. And then probably heard about the lawsuit, you know, that that's what they used it for. That also probably heard that they're it, they're fighting it. So now they're going to have questions for him and that's just adding on to it. Like I'm, I'm already a burden to my wife. I know she loves me. I know, I know that, but there, I have nothing for her. At least this was something, but the way I got it is just not sitting right. And she was like, he felt like torn to his soul. Like he was concerned. He, about the hereafter. And so she was like, the reason she lied and she didn't actually lie. Oh, well, okay. Well, no. So she set the scene up to look like he had been murdered. So that, yeah. Cause she's the one who broke the window and threw the syringe out the door. Although I think she, well, she wasn't thinking clearly. Obviously she had found her husband slumped over in his wheelchair and found the note and the money. She clearly didn't have time to plan and think logically, but it would have been better if she like switched this to the bottle or something to make it look like it was an accident instead of a murder. I think that was the, the issue that she made it look like a murder and had she made it look like an accident, like he he took too much insulin or he didn't have enough sugar, something, right? So something that would have naturally occurred or an accident, you know, but she didn't. She made it look like a murder. And so now she she has some troubles herself. So... Now we know that Mr. Vitello was not murdered. Okay, so he was not murdered. He died by suicide. So the next scene, Jessica is in a hotel because she's still she's still in New York, right? And Ray comes and he or or they're in his office. I don't know. They're somewhere. And he hands her, I guess, a copy of the order of dismissal or something. Basically, the suit, the lawsuit was either withdrawn or dismissed, one of the two. And we find out that Mrs. Vitello uh, received probation and community service. And I'm like, I don't even know why they would have prosecuted her for anything. Because 
they would have like they would have done an autopsy anyway, right? To determine his cause of death. Like he's elderly. And honestly, if she hadn't set up the scene and she was like, I just found him like this, they may have just been like, oh, it was probably the lung cancer or the diabetes. I, I don't even know if they would, at his age and his health, if they would have even done an autopsy if she didn't ask for one. Now, don't be out here like, don't give him an autopsy because of course then they will. Um, She might have been better off just like coming home, hiding the money, hiding the note, and immediately calling the police. Like I found him slumped over, not, you know, I, and like, I would have switched the bottles or the labels or something. Um, and like he, and so, like, oh my goodness, like, where did he even get that much sugar? Like he must, it must be bad that they have to inject him with sugar. And it is not just like, oh, okay, have a Coca-Cola. Like, it must be really bad um, that they would have that at home, you know? And I would just be like, oh my goodness, like he he must not have been able to read the labels uh, and was supposed to give insulin and then and took the, the dextrose. Oh my God, like, you know, um, whatever, whatever. I, that's the lie I would have told because that would have been the easiest thing to do. Like he got the bottles mixed up. You know, he his seeing isn't great. I thought I had put the dextrose out of reach, you know, but I must have put it next to the insulin and he picked up the wrong bottle. And he gave himself the amount of insulin that he would have taken, but it was dextrose and that and that caused him to go into a coma. Let that what girl, that's what you should have said. But I'm I'm gonna give you a pass. I'm gonna give you a pass. Because you really had, were in shock. And the fact that you were able to put it together to make it look like a murder as quickly and cleanly as you did, I got to give it to you, okay? I got to give it to you because like under pressure like that, under, you know, the emotional roller coaster that you must have been going through in this, these 10 minutes, girl, I don't know. That's wild. But... She got probation and community service. When honestly, she there she shouldn't have been arrested. She shouldn't have been nothing. Okay, you have our deepest apologies. Okay, did she get to keep that twenty five thousand dollars? That's my question. I don't care about probation or community service like that. I don't think she should have had any of that. But like, did she get to keep that twenty five thousand dollars? Cause like the person, cause Jerry knew that the money was being given to Angelo, Mr. Vitello for false testimony, right? So now she, yeah, she could be arrested for conspiracy. That's, that's for sure. Um, should she? Eh, I don't know. Arrested and then maybe like a non-criminal disposition. Because like, girl, girl, no, that's not all right. You know, messed up all these people's lives. But that boyfriend who is like twice your age, girl, 
and you the one coming out your pocket for $35,000 and trying to swindle a mil- like 500 plus from Jessica Fletcher? Girl, what? So yeah, she she don't need a taste of jail, but just like the holding cell, just to be detained for a little bit. You know, like turn herself in at 7 a.m. and then arraigned, like brought before the judge at like 10 and then free to go. Like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be sufficient. Maybe two court dates, two additional court dates that she would need to appear to. I think that's sufficient punishment for that. Because um, your father was a murderer. So... You're doing a lot better, uh, considering, uh, but yeah, no, no. Um, Justin could also have been arrested for conspiracy. I don't know where he went that night because he, he wasn't out killing Angelo. I don't know where he disappeared to. Uh, we may never know. We will never know. What? There's no follow-up to this episode. <laughs> we'll never know. But yeah, I don't... He can probably be arrested for conspiracy to commit perjury. But he didn't pay the money. So I don't know. I don't know if Justin could have been arrested because just having that idea, but he didn't take any steps toward to assist the conspiracy. You know what I mean? Like he didn't, he didn't wrap the cash. He didn't go to the bank. Like he didn't drive the attorney there. He didn't do anything like that. Which is even worse. Like he kept his hands clean and this was his whole idea. Yeah, I wish the worst for him. That's trash. So you're going to take advantage of your younger girlfriend? And like when she, when she told you that her father died trying to escape from prison, your first thought is, hey, that's how we going to get the money for the restaurant. We going to sue Oh, yeah, we're going to sue Jessica Fletcher. Oh, heck, yeah, we about to do this. All right, let me get a shyster lawyer up out here. Like, <laughs> there should be some repercussions for him. There there really should. I can't think of what they could be. And unfortunately, Sergeant Paulson don't look like he could figure it out either. But maybe when Ann Stevenson becomes district attorney, Maybe she can figure, I'm sure she can figure something out. She can figure something out. Good, good. Yeah, I feel better about that. She gonna figure something out so that Justin go to prison. Okay, not just jail, not local time, but prison. Preferably the same cell as his ex-girlfriend's daddy. Preferably, just saying. So we also find out that Charlie, the attorney, is looking at being disbarred, meaning that he is looking at losing his license to practice law in the state of New York. And it's possible that he is admitted elsewhere and 
New York State, if they feel petty enough, can contact those other states that he is barred in to let them know of their decision, okay? And if he is disbarred, right, not just has his license suspended for a period of time, but, or reprimanded, or some other lesser penalty, if, it, if he is disbarred, if they snatch that license from him, he ain't getting that back, okay? He ain't, he ain't getting that back. I believe there is a, because I've never had to deal with this, so thank God for that. Um, <laughs> ethics, important. So if, I believe that there's a period of time that you have to wait before you can reapply. Now, I don't know if that's written in the rules or if that is determined by uh, the decision makers, okay? (laughs) Based on a case-by-case basis. I do, since I do not have to deal with that, uh, thank God again, because, wow, took time. (laughs) Only trying to keep this license forever. That's it, you know, got it? They're going to have to take it out of my cold, dead hands. Okay. Cold, dead hands. So anyway, uh, (laughs) but yeah, I think there's a period of time before you can reapply, but there's such a thing called character and fitness. Now it's great if you've passed the bar exam, which I'm sure, well, actually, yeah, I think, has there always been a bar exam? Yeah, you know what? Um, John F. Kennedy Jr. took the bar several times. Okay, so yeah, mm, yeah, definitely in the 90s, okay, there was the bar exam. I think it goes back to like the 60s, probably before that. But anyway, so you, you've passed the bar exam. That's great. That is great. Um, sorry to those who have gotten their results back recently and did not pass the bar. Please study like it's a job and I send you all well wishes to pass in February. All well wishes to pass in February. Congratulations to those who passed in July. I have been there, okay? (laughs) Anyway, uh, so, you know, you've passed that. That's great, right? And you've passed your... Uh, ethics exam, great. But then there's character and fitness. Now, character and fitness, you have an attorney of that bar that comes and, you know, sometimes they do some research about you. They may ask other attorneys, uh, who, or judges maybe, who have, you know, you've been in front of or worked with. And they definitely speak with you to see if you're fit to be a member of the bar. Because despite the fact, and I'm not saying this because I I disagree, don't don't take it that way. But despite the fact that you have gone through four, three to four years of college, depending. Some people are super smart and did it in three. Um, I did it in four, so I'm not, <laughs> I, so not me. But, and you've spent 
money for three years of law school, or at the very least time because you got full merit scholarship for all four and then three years, perhaps you're not out of pocket anything, but you spent your time, energy, and uh, knowledge, right? Uh, for seven, six to seven years, okay? And you've sat for at least one bar exam and you've passed, you've sat for at least one uh, ethics exam and you've passed. Now you've gotten all your paperwork together and you just need that one last thing. But there's a bit of a problem because maybe you have a felony assault conviction and they're going to have questions about that. Maybe you were a terrible intern who lied or just didn't show up or made up stories or was disrespectful or harassing and you're former employers, the licensed attorneys of that bunch are kind of obligated to let the bar know that someone who may potentially be my colleague was out here lying, was out here disappearing for days on end, was out here saying racial, sexual stuff. And when disciplined about it, when, cons when told about that that's inappropriate, did not change their behavior. Yeah, yeah, though, people had to be let go early, stuff like that. All of that stuff can really negate all of the work that you put in. Okay. And there are some people who are attorneys and you're like, how did they pass a character and fitness exam? Now, perhaps they knew the person, perhaps their family knew the person who was assigned to them. Uh, perhaps they, once they became a licensed attorney, they became full of themselves, <laughs> you know? Maybe there were uh, things that happened in their lives after uh, being admitted to the bar that caused them to turn into these uh, terrible people. But yeah, so Charlie is out here scheming and scamming, all right, out here tampering with witnesses, paying off witnesses. That's not ethical. Okay. That's not, that's unbecoming of a member of the New York state bar. And I'm sure any bar in these 50 states would be like, yeah, nah, you can't be out here buying false testimony. You can't be out here. Well, you technically can buy true testimony because <laughs> you pay experts. Okay. Um, so there is that. Okay. But you can't be out here buying false testimony, nor can you be out here buying true testimony from lay people. Okay. 
or the police, because the police get paid by the state or the county or the town or the village. So yeah, yeah, those are, those are the people you can't pay, okay? <laughs> Legally, ethically, you can't pay a regular citizen to come and testify, okay? Or test a lie, as it were, okay? Because that, that's normally when it costs you some money for them to lie. Uh, only for expert testimony. So yeah, yeah, homeboy probably has a bunch of complaints as well. If he doesn't have previous complaints, I'm sure that once members of the bar find out that they have this complaint about him paying this witness $25,000 to suborn perjury, they're going to come out the woodworks. I mean, out the water, the air, the, the wood, the ground, the rocks, okay, <laughs> out of everywhere to be like, listen, this is my encounter with this unscrupulous attorney. He need to be disbarred, okay? He need to actually be kicked out of the state of New York. Like they are gonna remove him from the role of whatever law school he went to. <laughs> They're going to wipe his name out the book, okay? Because <laughs> there's literally a book that you sign. There's a role uh, that you sign when you're admitted to at least the New York State Bar. Uh, so yeah, they're going to they scratch that out once he's disbarred, okay? <laughs> that number that's assigned to you, no more. That's taken off the books, Never happened. Bad memory. So anyway, then let's <laughs> back to this. We're almost done. And so we find out that Ray is hanging up his, uh, I, I don't know, like we don't have like a robe or a wig like they do in uh, under... <laughs> under the British monarchy. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what he's hanging up, uh, but he's stepping away from the practice of law because he's like, you know, when you first came to me and I was suggesting that we settle, that's not the person. And you were like, no, like that would mean that I lied and you were very adamant about that. The fact that I was just focused on how much this would cost the insurance company, right? I was focused, I was driven by money. And I, that's not what I came into this to do. I'm like, you went into insurance defense and it's not to make money? Okay, it's not like, it's not like you were a prosecutor. It's not like, you were a legal aid attorney, you know, or a public defender, because they, they call them both, you know, and like out here working for the government, you know, representing people who couldn't afford it or fighting for, you know, the people of the state of New York and whatever county you're in. No, you were working in insurance defense and you're like, I gotta, this is not what I got into law for. Like, I was driven by money. 
yeah like i don't what i don't understand like is it that why you got into that okay anyway so and it's not even like he was doing like plaintiff's work where it is the injured person who's suing the insurance company At least then I could see him saying like, you know, when I got into this, it was to make sure that an injured person was well represented and got everything they deserved and wasn't, you know, brutalized by big corporations who have hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars and don't think nothing of, uh, a lawsuit taking three, four, five years. You know, it's not like you were a plaintiff's attorney, like living from check to check. You know, most of your clients not being able to afford it, but you doing this for the greater good. You're working at, you're working in insurance defense. Okay. No shade at all. Okay. Because they, the companies need, the insurance companies need to be defended as well. Okay. But it's not like I've gone so far afield by just thinking about settling cases that, you know, I'm going to step away from, you know, law and big corporations and, you know, maybe go fishing and stuff. I'm like, now listen, I can understand if you're burnt out, okay, I could also understand if you're like, you know what? It's not going to make a difference whether, or if he, if he says like, listen, the majority of my time here, I have just been representing a faceless insurance company against another faceless insurance company, right? I have not taken the time to see the actual people affected by us just going in, reading the papers, figuring out a number that we can both live with, and then going home. Now, if that's what he's trying to say, like, you know, I I knew this, I knew this wasn't about the people, but I now realize that it's not about faceless hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollar uh, insurance company against another billion dollar insurance company. It's real people who are affected by this. And I have to look at myself in the mirror and realize that I have ignored the people that my actions affect. And having worked side by side with you and had to look in your face (laughs) for the past three days on this adventure, it really puts things in perspective for me because now I realize there's more to life than making money. So I'm going to assume that's what he was saying but that's not what he said, but that I'm going to assume that's what he meant when he said, I was just running after the money. 
And this is not what I got into this for. Because that's the part that really, because words matter, okay? (laughs) And as a lawyer, he should know words matter. Because that's what took me out was like, this is not what I got into this for. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, that that is definitely a type of law that is not on its face a person to person type of law. You're you're playing with house money, right? You're not you know, it's not somebody on the other side the plaintiff. It could be, you know, they're injured and they can't work anymore and they need this settlement in order to live their life because they're unable to make an income either period or anywhere near what they were making before. So that on that side, the the attorneys representing those people, that's the face to face. That's the sob story. That's the, I can't, you know, I can't feed my kids and the, the heart pulling at the heartstrings and stuff like that. Not out here telling them to lie like Charlie. Now we ain't talking about those people. But you're playing with house money, okay? Whatever number you come up with, the insurance company is going to pay it out. Your fees are paid, your salary. It's not like a plaintiff's attorney that, you know, this person's injured. If you win, okay, great. I can, you know, I can eat for the next three months or three years, depending on how big the settlement is. Or you know what, I got to stay in this 1995 Ford Taurus and sleep on my mama's couch because this was a bad, you know, this, the two, three, four, five, ten big cases I have are dragging out because the big bad defense attorney for the insurance company, they don't care, you know? So get off your high horse, Ray, get off. Like, that, and he's talking about, I'm just going to go fishing. Clearly, you've made enough money that you can just walk away from law and a job, period. So don't, you definitely don't come to me about like, I, this is not what I got in here for. And you know, it just became about the money. It was always about the money. And you're talking about, I don't want to go, go to a restaurant where it's $100 per head. Sir, I'm sure you can afford it. If you're talking about I'm walking away from law for some undisclosed period of time to go fishing. Okay, like, what? Sir, you didn't even say, you know what? I'm, I'm going over to the plaintiff's side, you know? Because now I know all the tricks of the defense side I'm going to go and help those who need my help. You know, not the ones that were going to be out here hiring Charlie who aren't really injured, but they found the doctor to say what they needed to say. Okay. But, you know, or they tell the doctor whatever they need to say so that the doctor will write it up as such. You know, I don't want to put that all on the doctors. So yeah, miss me with that, Ray. Like I'm not... (laughs) You're no martyr, okay? You're no martyr. You didn't say, oh, I'm going to go and become a legal aid attorney. 
I'm going to come go and become a prosecutor. You know, I'm going to go and work for a not-for-profit, you know, which, um, I don't know. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of politics in that. So maybe, maybe you want to stay away from that. But there are other ways that you can practice law that uh, are beneficial to regular people, right? Or the people who need it the most. And he's like, I'm just going to go and fish. I'm the, listen, Ray, (laughs) that's a mess. Anyway, so that's that on that. Next week, we will be talking about deadly misunderstanding. Now, this is, the episode is fine, but I'm going to tell you up front that the lead woman in here, so there's a married woman in this, and we've seen her once before in a, a minor role in Good Goodbye Charlie. Good luck. Good luck, Charlie. That one, you know what I mean. <laughs> I think it was Goodbye Charlie. Whatever. The one with um the bookend episode uh with what's his face? John Stewart. No. <laughs> Bill Maher. God this Completely different person, Bill Maher. Anyway, so I'm going to tell you now that that woman is so annoying. Okay, so that's what y'all going to hear about her. She she is frustrating. She's annoying. I don't like her. I don't like her. I don't like her. Okay, and we see her one more time after that. Also in another episode that I enjoy, except for her, because she is annoying, okay? Sorry to that actress, but they wrote you to be very annoying, okay? I'm gonna blame it on the writers, okay? Girl, I'm gonna give you at least that. I'm gonna blame it on the writers, but listen, just insufferable. So just a heads up, okay? (laughs) But this episode, like I said, not... The strongest episode of the season, definitely not a weak episode, not a weak episode, but not the strongest of the season, but I'm not mad that it is how we're starting season seven. We needed to see Jessica. We needed, it would have been nice for it to be a Cabot Cove episode, but you'll notice they're moving away from Cabot Cove. In season eight, she... Get uh, Jessica gets an apartment in Manhattan. Okay, so in seven, she's already starting to make that transition of teaching in Manhattan. And, you know, we know she travels a lot already. But season seven is setting us up for her to have more New York episodes in season eight. So I'm not surprised that they I, no, I take that back. I am surprised they didn't start with a Cabot Cove episode, knowing that this is probably going to be the last season that we see as many Cabot Cove episodes as we will. Deadly Misunderstanding is a Cabot Cove episode. So until next time, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram. 
You can find me on Facebook Meta at the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook Meta. And of course, in the description box is my is the link to my Patreon account. If you're not in it, get into it. Okay, we got Murder, She Wrote book reviews. We have a few other book reviews there as well. We have movie reviews for how in honor of Halloween. I put up Halloween Party, the Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot uh, episode, which I was shook, okay? I was shooketh, okay? <laughs> I see that ending coming, okay? They don't they don't go on Agatha Christie, the queen of mysteries for nothing, okay? Mm. Might have to watch a few more of those episodes if they're gonna come out like that, like that. Surprised, shooketh, watch it, okay? If you don't have BritBox, um, first sign up for my Patreon, right? Then get you a nice seven day free trial Go ahead and watch that episode. Uh, also watch, I think Mirror Cracked is on there for free. Uh, yeah, just go through the movies that I've done this year. Um, see which ones are on BritBox. Go ahead and watch those during those seven days that you have it for free. And then go on to the Patreon, right? And listen to the reviews. That That's how you do it to make this a great holiday season, okay? <laughs> But anyway, until next time, promise me you will have an amazing week and I will do the same. Until then, bye.